So I was going to preach a sermon on cynicism, but I figured out why bother. I don't, right? No, that's going to work. Nah, actually, I'd like to ask you if you would to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Going to be in verse 14, and then we're going to jump down to 22 through 34 in a few moments. And uh, if you have a Bible app, that can be your friend. That'll be on there if you'd like it. Um, we're going to read a chunk of text today from the scripture, um, so that will be helpful to you. As I begin, I want to tell you that I'm really indebted to a gentleman whose name is Richard Beck. I never met Richard Beck, but I've read his work, and I've read things he's written online and uh, watched some of his videos online. He is a, a professor at Abilene Christian University, and uh, I just want to read to you what he says in, in one of his books when he's talking a little bit about cynicism. So listen to what he says. Now think about it. He's a college professor in a Christian college. And this is what he says. I spent most of my time with other Christians who were jaded, skeptical, cynical, overeducated, and elitist. My faith had become very dry, almost non-existent. My faith had become a philosophy, a collection of ideas to kick around with other smart people in a coffee shop or pub. And as he continues to write in that particular chapter, he talks about how he became disenchanted with his faith because he allowed his faith to become disenchanted. And his thoughts on how God re-enchanted his faith helped me a lot in the past several months and even this past week. It helped me move away from the cynicism circuit. That's the street we're avoiding today. I thought we were done with the streets, but I threw one on the end here. And it's not really a street. It's, uh, it's a, a circuit like the Formula One circuit. You familiar with the Formula One race circuit? The Formula One race circuit is really just a, a collection of highways in different cities that they, they block them off for public travel, and then they run these incredibly high-tech cars on them at high rates of speed. You're running down the public highway and uh, there's no public cars on it, you're just racing there. And it's all over the world. It's in the Middle East, it's in Europe, it's in Asia. The, the, the circuit, the Formula One circuit is all over the world. It's not just at Daytona, it's not just at Indianapolis. It's kind of like the cynicism circuit because the cynicism circuit is all over the world. I've seen it growing up. Have you seen it growing up? I, I've seen it when I've traveled, when I lived in Georgia. I saw the cynicism circuit was functioning well there. I've seen it as I've traveled around the world in Ecuador, among the church there, the Christians there, and among the international workers who were there. There's that cynicism circuit. I saw it in Chile. I've seen it in Russia. I've seen it in Turkey. I've seen it in Japan. I've seen it in Israel. I've seen it in Muslim countries. The cynicism circuit is everywhere you go. I struggle with everything that goes with cynicism, the skepticism and all the rest of it. And I have for a long time. I'm pretty sure it was in fourth grade when I first heard the phrase, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And I immediately and intentionally took that phrase to be my own. That's me. And, and such people as I, we tend to have an attitude of distrust toward supposed ethical standards and high and lofty ideals and social mores and values. In some regards, our mantra is, yeah, I ain't buying that. I'm not buying into that. 
cynics often find themselves in a bit of a cycle, the cynic cycle. Let me try to explain how it works. First, they experience disappointment in something they believe in, something they believed in with all their heart. Like, this is important. Maybe it's a person or something. And it lets them down. That experience enters their heart and creates a sense of discontentment, like the world isn't what I thought it was. And I'm not sure I like the world the way it is. And that discontentment is extremely uncomfortable. And so they resolve to protect themselves from further pain. Fool me twice, shame on you. That's not happening again. And as they go on protecting themselves, they often develop a cynical spirit, either intentionally or accidentally. Yeah, I ain't buying into that. And then the next negative experience comes along, sometimes created by their own cynical spirit, sometimes it comes along organically, and it does nothing more than affirm their disappointment and even increase their disappointment, and the cycle is full. Hmm. It's really a defense mechanism, cynicism is, a way we deal with that disappointment. And it kind of becomes a trap. A group uh, called the Communication Consultants said this, They said, cynicism is an unproductive reaction to disappointment. It springs from the helplessness that people feel when they're disappointed by others and allow themselves to become detached observers rather than active participants. In my experience, when cynicism fills your heart, it affects your faith. Some people, (laughs) when cynicism begins to fill their heart, they just press They just press, did I lose it? Am I here? Whew, I don't know what happened. Some people, when cynicism fills their heart, they just press the eject button on their faith. I'm done with this. Maybe they walk away from church. Maybe they walk away from God. And cynicism, left unchecked, it can do that. But there is another danger for those on a cynicism circuit. Some people actually hold on to God. They stay put, but they let go of hope. And the hope, (laughs) they hold on to God. Uh, There's someone's texting me and my phone's just going to do that for the next hour and a half. Yep. Where's that power button? Hey, Drew, turn this off. Thanks. You can tell your phone to go on vibrate. It says, I don't want to stay there. Phones, I'm so cynical about them. When cynicism fills your heart, it can affect your faith. You can press eject on it. But some people let go of God, uh, rather hold on to God, and let go of hope. Think about that for a moment. They hold on to God. They keep going to church. They keep being religious. But they let go of any hope that God's going to make things better. They let go of any hope that things are going to be okay. And they're really letting go of the miraculous part of their faith. And their disenchantment robs their faith of its enchantment. They experienced disappointment in something they believed in. Maybe it was church leadership. Maybe it was a pastor who they knew and loved and he really had helped them and helped them to grow. His teaching was so fantastic. And then what happened? He was found out. Let me just ask you a question. How many of you have experienced something like that with a pastor either on TV or in the media, on a podcast? Put your hand up. You've experienced that? Yeah, even personally? Yeah, me too. Me too. That can make you cynical. Sometimes, and this is maybe more relevant to today's era, 
sometimes fellow believers can seem to behave in an unchristian way regarding issues in society and we jump to judgment and we judge them and want to walk away from them. Yeah, cynicism. Sometimes it's division in a church family and it can take away the enchantment from our faith. Or it could even be something like unanswered prayer. I I knew a woman who was very cynical 30 years ago. She was cynical whenever you talked about praying because she said, when I was a little girl, I prayed my grandma wouldn't die and she died. She was 90-some years old, but she died. And cynicism had taken root in her heart. Or she prayed, uh, another person might pray that that baby would just stop. God, would you make that baby quit crying? I was up 10 times last night. Can you help that baby to stop crying? And ah, there it goes again. It's like, what's the use in praying? And they're disappointed. And so they kind of start to make this system in their mind. They think, you know, maybe God doesn't heal grandmothers. Maybe God doesn't, doesn't care that mothers get good sleep at night. Maybe God doesn't do miracles. Oh, that's harsh. To say God doesn't do miracles, that's harsh. How about this? Maybe the age of miracles has passed. And there are no more miracles today. And there are people who have spelled out an entire theology, either in print or simply on their heart, based on the idea that God just doesn't do miracles. And those people, the enchantment with their faith is gone. It's gone. Their faith is disenchanted. I want to talk a little bit about miracles today. And I want to talk about how often we kind of tend to dismiss the miraculous, you know? People tend to dismiss the miraculous for maybe a couple reasons. Maybe they know someone who's praying for a miracle and they're like, I don't think God's going to deliver that. And so with maybe good intentions, they go to that person and say, hey, you know, I don't know if God's going to do that. Maybe God has other plans. And that sentence is true. Ask Paul about the thorn in his flesh. But what they're doing, I think, is trying to protect God as though he needed protecting. And what they're bringing is just a little bit of cynicism and a little bit of, of taking away the enchantment from faith. Something I'd not thought about until recently is sometimes we say this about God not doing miracles to kind of protect ourselves. I grew up around some people who had adopted a theology that did not expect miracles in this present age, in this dispensation. And I must admit, they were never disappointed. You never ask for a miracle, you never get a miracle, you're not disappointed. But here's what they were. Every bit as cynical as the people that were asking for miracles. They still struggled with cynicism. The problems with creating a faith without miracles are easy to see. First, it doesn't work. It doesn't prevent you from having to face cynicism and deal with that. A second problem is that we actually, you actually see miracles sometimes. I've told you before, I I saw a dead man open his eyes right in this building when he was surrounded by several healthcare professionals. He was dead, according to them. He opens his eyes. He says, what's going on? I saw that with my own eyes once. I've only seen it once. I'd be happy to see that over and over again, right? But I've seen it. Kind of blows your theology of there are no miracles today away. A third problem with creating a Christianity without miracles is that thing called the Bible. 
I mean, the Bible is chock full of miracles. It's so full of miracles. You might not know this, but Thomas Jefferson, who cut the miracles out of his Bible and had the Jefferson Bible, Thomas Jefferson got blisters on his fingers from running the scissors so much to cut them out, and he finally expressed, I got blisters on my fingers! That was the Beatles fans who got that, and all you did is barely chuckle. Look, when I go that hard for a joke, man, you've got to give me a pity laugh at least. Uh, that was a great Ringo, yeah, yeah. No, I'm just kidding. That wasn't him on the White Album, and he didn't get blisters on his fingers, but he sure had a lot of cutting to do. In our passage, we're going to see Jesus doing a lot of miracles right out of the gate. Mark chapter 1, your Bible's open to verse 14. Listen to verse 14, and then we'll go down to verse 22. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this, a new teaching? And with authority? He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and immediately they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her by the hand and helped her up. The fever left her and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people people brought Jesus, all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Did you see all the miracles there? All the references to miracles. I mean, there's deliverance from demons again and again. There's curing someone with a fever. There's, there's healing all kinds of diseases. There's caring for such a crowd of people that they're there after sunset, standing at the door waiting to get in. There's no street lights. It's dark. It's as dark as it is when you're hunting in the middle of the night and your battery's dead on your flashlight. And there they are standing there waiting to get to the house so Jesus can do a miracle for them. It would kind of seem that the world of Jesus is downright enchanted. And as a recovering cynic, that's what I could use, the enchanted world of Jesus. I want to talk a little bit about that word enchantment. Because there might be some of you thinking, enchantment? Is he talking about witchcraft? That word enchantment, isn't that like having a spell cast? Yeah, but I'm not using it that way. It's not the way I'm using it. Not using it to talk about hocus pocus. When I say enchantment, I'm talking about the opposite of the mundane. And you may remember that last week we noticed that mundane doesn't simply mean dull. I mean, that's the first definition of it. It is lacking interest. It is lacking excitement. It is dull, the mundane. But the second definition in the Oxford English Dictionary of mundane says, mundane is of this world rather than the heavenly or spiritual one. And so when I say that our faith is enchanted, I mean that it is not dull, that it is not uninteresting, that it is not lacking excitement. Instead, Our faith is heavenly, it is spiritual, it is filled with wonder. Our faith, it is founded in the supernatural. Centuries before Jesus is born in Bethlehem, the scripture says 
the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. A virgin birth? That is anything but mundane. Our faith is enacted by the miraculous. The Apostle Paul, when he's getting ready to talk about the resurrection in his letter to the church at Corinth in chapter 15, is kind of like giving you a synopsis of what our faith is. And in verse 3, he says, For I received what I passed on to you as of first important, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scripture. The atoning work of Christ on a cross for us paying for our sins on the cross for us, going to the grave dead, a corpse, and three days later walking out of there, that resurrection is anything but mundane. Our faith, it is a faith of the Spirit. And Jesus, when he talks to the woman at the well, whose world was pretty mundane, he says, God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. That's not mundane. That's enchanted and it's enchanting. So you think about it, really, enchantment is not a bad word for what we're talking about here, especially when you consider that cynicism is complete disenchantment with everything. Think how we use the word disenchantment. You know that actor? I really liked him at first, but recently I've been kind of disenchanted by him. You know that, that candidate and the things she stood for? <laughs> I was right behind her for a long time, but I'm totally disenchanted now. Hey, you know, I used to love that sport. It was so much fun. I watched it every time it was on. But from what I've seen from these players, I've simply become disenchanted. Being disenchanted with an actor or with a political candidate or with a sport, a football team or whatever, that's not really a big deal in the grand scheme of things. But when you disenchant your faith, a faith that is by nature enchanted, welcome to the cynicism circuit. When we disenchant our faith, we lose something vital, something alive. I'm enchanted with my wife. That woman over there, she enchants me. She never stops surprising me. The things she says, the, the quickness she has to forgive. Thank you, Jesus, for giving me a wife who's quick to forgive. The way she serves. You know, a week or two ago, she polished these shoes. Her. The, the heart she shows. The care she gives. Those things, my friends, are anything but mundane. They are enchanting. To be honest, I don't always feel that way about my wife. There are times uh, I don't feel that way. But those times when I don't see those things, it's because I've stopped looking. I've stopped being intentional to look at how enchanting she is. I have chosen to ignore that which is right in front of me. And it's the same with God. When you lose your enchantment with him, it's not because he's changed. It's because you've stopped looking. And you have done what Revelation 2.4 says, phrases as, you have lost the love you had at first for God. And there's no life in that. So I choose life. I choose enchantment. I choose enchantment with Laurel. I choose enchantment with you. I choose enchantment with God. Because enchantment is vital. It keeps love alive. 
it might be a good idea to consider some factors that contribute to disenchantment. And these factors are not going to be pleasant to speak about, so why don't we skip them and go to the next part of the message? Hmm. They're not pleasant to think about, but they are worth our while. One huge factor contributing to disenchantment is arrogance. Arrogance. Arrogance robs beauty. I'm sorry. Arrogance robs enchantment of its beauty. It takes the beauty right out of it. No wonder the scripture says in Proverbs 3.18, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. Why? Why? Because arrogance causes us to place our own opinions, our own ideas, our own abilities on a plane that is above everyone else's, including God. And we put God second. And when you do that, it's like just opening the valve on the tire and letting all the air out of your enchantment, all the, all the enchantment out of your faith. Arrogance, personal arrogance brings disenchantment. Another factor contributing to disenchantment is ignorance. Being ignorant of your own cynicism in your own heart and the damage it's causing. Let me ask you something. Have you ever seen a serious flaw in someone else's character? Of course you have, right? And you look at that flaw in their character and you wonder to yourself, how can they not see that? I mean, it's just so obvious. How can she not see? How can he not see that? Chances are that if you are not asking God to show you your own flaw, someone's wondering the same thing about you. So you follow the model of Psalm 139. In verse 23, where it says, Search me, God. It's a prayer. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is anything offensive in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. You got to know, arrogance, not going to pray that prayer. And ignorance will remain. And you'll remain on a cynicism circuit. There's a third factor that contributes to disenchantment. And that is fear. <laughs> Remember when I put the psycho up there? Did you happen to notice how many of those things were connected with fear in one way or another? Cynicism is akin to cowardice. It is afraid to hope. It's afraid to trust. It's afraid to love again. It's afraid to be disappointed. Oh, God, help us to get off this cynicism circuit. Is that what you want? I want that. I want that for me. I want that for you. So I want to talk to you about some steps toward re-enchantment. <laughs> I don't know if that's a word or not, but it is on the screen. Speaking of the screen, as you look at the screen, you see the cross there. And the reason I often put the cross up at the end of a message like this, and we're not near the end, so don't get excited. But the reason I put the cross up there at times like this is because really, this isn't a list of three things you can do to be all better. This is a list of three things that should drive you to the cross because at the cross is where change of heart and change of life is going to happen because at the cross is where you need to surrender to Christ and to his teaching. And the first of these three steps would be to drill down on what Christian faith is. Christian faith is knowing that you have offended a holy God and realizing he loved you 
and gave himself for you and turning from your sin to trust in his death on your behalf to give you forgiveness and release from shame so you can follow him and show him show him your love. That's Christian faith, receiving the love of God. Maybe when I talk about let's drill down on what Christian faith is, we should talk a little bit about what it isn't. And this list could be really long. Christian faith isn't a, a social club like the sportsman's club. Christian faith is not a baptism certificate. Christian, Christian faith is not some kind of social agenda to change the world. Christian faith is not a way to make your life easier so you're in, right, out, right, up, right, down, right, happy all the time. Christian faith is not a political movement. Not a political movement. <laughs> Let me just pick on politics for a while because I love to do it. Jesus never portrayed his ministry politically. He didn't start or get behind a political movement, and you better believe that there were a lot of zealous political parties that would have welcomed someone like him with the following he had. But you don't see Jesus involved. Jesus knew that he would be executed by the state, by the Roman government, but Jesus' ministry cannot be described as political activism against Rome. It wasn't. And if there was ever a political system to stand against, Rome would be the one. I mean, Rome in the days of Jesus oppressed people, it exploited people, it enslaved people, it crucified people. It did it all. And yet even when Jesus cleared the temple, he wasn't being political, he was making room for people to pray. That was his agenda. And when you allow politics, or anything else for that matter, apart from Christ, when you allow politics to be the measuring stick by which you judge your Christian faith or someone else's Christian faith, you almost certainly are draining the enchantment right out of your own faith. You're taking it away. And no one's looking at you and saying, wow, that guy's spiritual life, it's just enchanting. <laughs> You're just like everyone else, mired in the mud of the mundane. Jesus shows us that Real faith is a matter of loving God and loving your neighbor. It must have seemed absolutely insane to Jesus' followers when Jesus was compassionate and gracious to the very people that history would tag as being the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people. Tax collectors who had betrayed the people of God. Jesus treated them as friends and they were enchanted. People with really bad morals. <laughs> Jesus treated them with dignity, and they were enchanted. <clears throat> Even military leaders of the enemy, like the centurion, Jesus heals his servant, and a man's enchanted. Real Christian faith is giving love to people who don't deserve it, the love that you receive from God that you did not deserve. And real, real Christian faith is found at the cross. At the cross, Jesus loved. He loved his neighbor as himself. I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. That's enchanting. He loved his enemies. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's enchanting. 
He loved his Father in heaven. Not what I will, but thy will be done. That's enchanting. And in that beaten, physically tortured, dying state, Jesus was anything but disenchanted. He was anything but cynical. You want to get off the cynicism circuit? Go to the cross. Ask him to forgive your own arrogance and your own ignorance. And ask him to help you see the simplicity of what Christianity is all about. Get off the cynicism circuit. Here's the second step. Look into your own heart. Look intently into your own heart. Do you feel disenchanted? Is your disenchantment warranted? Does God need to rewrite the parameters of Christian faith to make it more to your liking and more enchanting to you? Hear the arrogance there? (laughs) Hey God, I'd be a lot less cynical if you would just... Really? The problem of many who are disenchanted is not their lack of faith. The problem of many who are disenchanted is their abundance of arrogance. So where do you go to get rid of the arrogance? The cross. The cross. And you bow your knee, which is hard for an arrogant heart to do. And you stare into your own shame, not indefinitely, because if you stared into the depth of your own shame indefinitely, it would destroy you. But you stare into it long enough to let the cheap veneer that hides it from you and everyone else burn off, and then you confess it to God. And you ask him for forgiveness. And he gives it to you. And you ask him to re-enchant your faith, your heart. And he does that. Hmm. Yeah. Look deeply into your own heart. And that which you see there that is inappropriate. Take it to the cross. Third, radically open your heart to wonder. Reopen your heart to wonder the wonder that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Release God from your silly demands and look for miracles and expect them. By the way, I said to you, I've only seen that happen one time, that someone is dead and then they're not dead afterward. That was really impressive. A lot of people never get to see that. But you often get to see no less significant pieces of God's enchantment before your very eyes if you will just look at them. When you see adults gathered together around the Bible and the teacher saying, so here's what's going on with Job. And the students are nodding. Yes, I peeked in the window of your class this morning, Matt. Yeah. When you see that, take a moment to wander and say, wow, God. When you see a couple dedicating their child to God before their church family, take a moment to stand in awe and wonder and say, what a miracle. When you see an adult teaching a bunch of children in children's church, trying to round them up (laughs) and trying to communicate the truth to them and smiling while they're doing it, stand in amazement and take a moment to wonder When you're at a wedding, I take you to be my wedded wife. Take a moment to wonder. 
When you're at a funeral, we now commit the body of this beloved one to its resting place. The spirit we leave with God. Take a moment of quietness of spirit and take a moment to wonder at what you're witnessing. When you're at the dinner table, dinner table, eating shrimp with pasta or hot dogs with spaghetti. Take a moment to wander. When you're in a nursing home, when you get up in the morning, when you fall asleep, embrace wander. Radically open your heart to wander. Embracing enchantment is not forcing yourself to believe things you struggle to believe in. Embracing enchantment is allowing yourself to be interrupted and surprised by God. Got it? Wow, that's really profound. Embracing enchantment is not forcing yourself to believe something you struggle to believe in. Okay, I'll try to believe it, I'll try to believe it. Embracing enchantment is allowing yourself to be interrupted and surprised by God and looking for that to happen. I want to pray that that would happen in your life. But before I do, before I do, I want to ask you just to be honest with yourself, with God, with me and the people around you. If you recognize in your heart that there is a spirit of cynicism, I'm not talking about demon of cynicism, I'm just saying there's a, I, I tend to have a problem with cynicism in my heart. Do you have the courage to just say, I have that, would you please pray, pray for me, Pastor Steve? Put your hand up if that's you. Okay, put it up high, keep it up. And this isn't a every head bowed, every eye closed thing. This is a look around. Go ahead, look around. Look at those hands. Okay. Here's why I'm having you look around. I want you to know you're not alone. I think sometimes cynics feel like nobody else gets the world like I get the world. And that's part of our arrogance. Nobody understands this like I. If you guys understood this like I did, you wouldn't be so cheery. You know, that's part of the cynic's problem, right? But I want you to see you're not alone. To a greater or lesser degree, there are a lot of people who are just like you. And sometimes we say, well, I'm not alone, so it must be okay. Wrong. <laughs> what I want you to take from it is, I'm not alone. God must be used to dealing with this, and he's going to deal with it for me. I can't wait. Got it? Got it? And so now I'd like to ask all of you if you would please stand, okay? And I would like to, uh, I would like to pray for you. And with you, okay? Don't you wish you had a pastor who didn't have any problems so he just preached about yours and not his own? (laughs) My heart is with your heart. My hand was up with yours. Let's talk to God about it. Father in heaven, we come to the cross. We come there to surrender. When we drill down on what our Christian faith is, we realize that it's very easy for us to put other things attached to it that distract from it and drain it of its enchantment. Forgive us for doing that. We realize that you loved us and you gave yourself for us. And we turn our hearts toward you, turning away from our own sin and arrogance and our own shame. We repent. We turn our hearts toward you. We ask you, Jesus, to forgive us. We believe that you died on the cross to pay for our forgiveness and that you long to abundantly Give us your grace. We receive that love. We receive your grace. And we want to share it with others. We want our Christian faith, God, to be an outpouring of the enchantment of what it feels like to be forgiven. Make it happen.
May we consistently look in our own hearts. May we recognize, Father, things that might be inhibiting our own, our own enchantment. We repent of arrogance. We repent of the ignorance of ignoring the problems that are in our heart, thinking maybe they'll just go away on our own. We repent of not coming to you with these things. Here's my heart. Here's my heart. Do what you will. Bring the enchantment to my heart. This heart is radically open to wonder. We're not asking to see a man come back from the dead and say, what's going on? We're asking that you would give us the eyes to see the wonder of children getting onto a school bus, to see the wonder of a well-cooked meal, to see the wonder of being able to lay someone to rest with confidence of the resurrection, to see the wonder of a good cup of coffee. Help us understand that you long to enchant our faith, that you long to enchant our lives, that you long to interrupt us and surprise us. Please do not allow us to ever close our eyes to that, neither now nor in the future. May we exit this circuit of cynicism by the power of your spirit in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.